Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Charlotte Cotton's practice is about reaching for the ungraspable, a process of seeking out and investigating the way that visual culture shifts and manifests in our lives. I think of her lovingly as a kind of oracle, She has this unique ability to feel the vibrational energy within the spaces of photography, fashion, art and culture and distill it for us in ways that pushes us to think and grow as humans. As we stand in these uncertain times, speaking with Charlotte is energising and hopeful as she talks about the role we all have in changing the blueprint. No one is an expert on what is next. And an artist's proposal for what it needs to be or how to imagine and act urgently is as important as a scientist at this particular juncture. Like we should really just accept that none of us are experts on the future and we need to all create and mobilise. Charlotte is a curator, writer and consultant who's explored photographic culture for over 20 years. She's held a range of positions around the world in notable museums, from the curator of photographs at the V&A to the head of programming at the Photographer's Gallery in London. She also has a long relationship with publishing. The Photographer's Contemporary Art is published in 10 languages and is a key text in charging the rise of photography as an undisputed art form in the 21st century. In Photography is Magic, she surveys over 80 artists whose photographic practices shape the possibilities of our contemporary image environment. And in Public Private Secret on Photography and the Configuration of Self, she addresses the complex intersections of our rights to be seen and heard while claiming the privilege of privacy. She has endless more accolades beyond the highlights I've just mentioned, but in essence, she is a creative force and someone who I've long admired. And I just want to add a personal note here, guys. During my conversation with Charlotte, I was in the process of recovering from surgery, which had affected my voice box a little. So you're going to have to deal with me as a slightly more raspy, hoarse version of myself on this one. Where did art begin for you? Where did you pick it up? How did you build a connection with it? Was it something that started in your childhood or did it happen later for you? No, it's definitely, and I don't know if I'd call it art. I mean, like lots of people, you start, you don't give it a proper word. It's just something that gets into your system. And mine was super young. And, you know, it's thanks to my parents, I will begrudgingly admit. (laughs) My parents were um, self-employed. And in the late 60s, before I was born, they got into restoring antique furniture. It was when what was called country furniture became a big, cool thing. And my dad being my dad, he he wanted to own it all and he was curious about everything. So he and my mum set up a furniture restoration business that supplied the antiques trade and the interior decoration trade. He, he had two great innovations, but the one that I remember was is, is that he was able to dehumidify furniture, antique furniture so that it could deal with particularly West Coast dry climates and it wouldn't crack. So he was a major supplier of, of English and French vernacular furniture to the West Coast of America. So we saw a lot of stuff like, you know, these container loads of furniture would arrive and my sister and I, I have a twin sister, would go through all of the drawers and cupboards and find stuff. So we had a very, very active imaginary life. And Mm -hmm. on top of that, I had like this pal who was the same age as me, my sister. So, you know, we really 
went on an imaginative journey. In fact, I, my sister and I wore dressing up to school until we were eight years old and we were Amazing. told we weren't allowed to wear it. Which so, um, <laughs> was one of those days which was like, get me out of school. <laughs> this is what's wrong with school. This is not um, for me. <laughs> but so my parents essentially wrote the first working class history of furniture and they were seeing so much furniture they could see regional difference which hadn't been really mapped before so they were photographing they were traveling up to the islands of Hebrides or to Newfoundland or to Australia like they were looking at the way that working class regional furniture making impacted and how you mapped it so <clears throat> So And so they essentially had a business, but they also had a practice. And, mm-hmm. you know, my dad did his PhD when he was in his 50s. And that also did influence me, I think, in my choices in as much as he wrote his PhD on um, Peter and Jane books. So, you know, the books we used to learn mm-hmm. how to read. And so my mom would spend her time scalping out Jane out of her mise-en-scene or Peter so you could look at the gender biases of you know Peter always was doing something outdoorsy and Jane was baking a cake and so it was looking at the gender bias and the psychoanalytics of the books that we had learned to read so I think probably from the age of about five I was highly suspicious about the construct of images just from sitting underneath this table picking up little bits of Jane and little bits of Peter Yeah. So, you know, I think from quite an early age, it was like really open to putting things in your mouth to see what they would taste like, that real Mm -hmm. sort of investigation. And, um, you know, my parents didn't come from privilege. They were like the first they were they trained as teachers. You know, they got their education later in life. And so I, I also feel that there's something incredibly lucky and special about education, but also autodidactic learning. And I think Mm -hmm. I also, that's something that also I've taken into a life which isn't being an artist, but it's with art, to quote Gilbert and George. And again, I think my parents very much taught me that as well it's like what do you want to pick up and look at what what are you curious about how do you start looking at patterns and you know how big can the view be really which is really thanks to them and and my sister is my playmate there's so much in what you just said that really resonates for me thinking about your work everything (laughs) from mapping to sort of yeah this like endless curiosity what what motivates you now when you're you know in your day-to-day practice, like what is it that kind of gets you going, that fuels your curiosity? Um, I wouldn't say it's a constant thing, although I still get those sort of excitements when I'm just like, oh, that's really good. Or, you know, whether it's a word or a particular artist or there's been like I've had a week where three conversations have sort of this must happen to you a lot that you sort of end up like there's a pattern emerging. Yeah. And you've got "Mm, that's good. That's on the tip of my tongue. I don't know what that is that yet. And I think that also relates to kind of the timing of curatorial work. Like, you know you're on to something. You don't know what form it's going to take. You want to resist over-prescribing what it is. You just have this amazing period where it's just full of potential and you can feel it. You can feel the energy of it. I should say also I was born, uh, my sister and I were born under a gibbous moon, which is before it is just before it goes to full moon. And I think as a personality, that means you're somebody who's like always like, this is the best bit. It's not like the climax. <laughs> but it's the bit before it where you're like putting it all together, you know, choosing what to wear. <laughs> It's interesting you bring up fashion, actually, because that is something I think actually it could have even been my first introduction to your work is something you wrote about fashion and fashion. You know, obviously, everybody knows you for art and photography and and you're thinking around lots of different ideas. But fashion feels like it's not a secret because you're very much out there talking about fashion, thinking about fashion. 
but it feels like it's a I don't know, like a subplot maybe in your practice. And I was curious just to ask you about it because, you know, we've never talked about it. And uh, I guess I'm interested what fashion means to you and how you think about it in the wider context of your practice. Every couple of years on the publicly, curatorially, I do something around fashion and Mm -hmm. it's changed over time. Um, depends again what sort of seems super interesting or urgent for me to do I mean I also work within fashion image and editorial and consultancy as well Um, well where did where did it start I mean in a way it was I mean we've just been talking about my parents and them just sort of mapping regionality in furniture and I think it started off as a mapping project, which was um, it was back in the mid 1990s. And I was already a, I imagine I was up until 96. I was a curatorial curatorial assistant at Victoria and Albert Museum in photography. And um, I spent a lot of time, as you did as a junior curator, on the print room desk, you know, the print room, which is this uh, this space open five days a week. You can access, you know, three and a half million works on paper, including photographs from the National Collection. And people were beginning to come in and ask to see if had we got work by Jürgen Teller or David Sims or Corinne Day. And that's part of the remit of public service, which was what curating was back in the day. You were literally a public servant. And so there was this kind of obligation, which I felt I was really ready to take on, which was like we needed to supply, you know, this kind mm. of collection of of photography that that young people were asking maybe they were students up at the Royal College of Art which was still just you know walking distance from the print room what I didn't realize is it was more than that and um, thanks to meeting a few people very very quickly who'd been very instrumental in shaping fashion image as it emerged in Britain in the late 80s and early 1990s was that it was the moment to look at Mm. and um, it also coincided with me and Mark Hayworth Booth who was the head of the department spending more time helping the British Library with the National Sound Archive and it has this archive the oral history of British photography and it's it's a phenomenal archive and it's a phenomenal training that you get by the British Library of how to interview to, how to interview someone and get their life story and not to interview mm-hmm. with a journalistic way and to sit with silence and get these records of how somebody's mind works. And also it's sort of based on the principles of early documentary and mass observation that ordinary life is really important so you ask questions that I mean I'm not meaning to make you self-conscious Jen because because you're a brilliant interviewer I wouldn't have said yes I'm very particular about who I'm (laughs) interviewed by because I've done a lot of training in it but the way that somebody you have to be interested in everything like what was your first bedroom like or who did you play Mm. with as a child and anyway so I went through the training and then I was meeting predominantly working class artists, like people who had not gone to college to, uh, or art school and mm-hmm. who'd done assisting, assisting jobs. And, you know, this, I was just learning through their life stories, which I was taking for the British Library, these in- epic stories of like from, I mean, Oedipal stories, you know, from, you know, lowly shepherd to prince, you know, in four years, like these incredible careers. Wow. And also it was a way of doing that, which wasn't about intellectualizing their processes. It was really talking about this energy of this industry, which privileges youth and risk-taking or definitely did at that moment. We were dealing with one of the most radical moments in fashion, which I don't think the late 80s early 90s we haven't seen we didn't we had to wait until now on the new black vanguard to see another moment where personal stories become the substance of fashion Mm. image and it's so exciting but i so i basically had this incredible access to amazing 
creatives, let's say, because it wasn't just photographers, it was stylists, it was art directors, it was hair and makeup artists. And I loved all of that about fashion as well, that it wasn't some guy genius who I'd go and sit at the feet at. It was like amazing Mm -hmm. women. It was amazing people Mm -hmm. of color. It was like whoever had that kind of chutzpah just to go and try it and find their contemporaries and take risks together. So it was it was like listening to this epic story and piecing together this epic story of what had happened in London and in New York through this time. And I was it was just a few years after they had started. So there was there was elements of reflection in what they were saying. And I also, as a curator, I mean, when I started curating fashion, people were like, that's career suicide. And I was (laughs) like, I didn't see it like that at all. I mean, Mm. I understood people were extremely dismissive of fashion image. A lot of people still are. I'm a bit like, that's amazing that you still hold that really Mm. out of date view. But anyway, and, you know, so I met people who just thought that was like the worst thing and it was very feminized and it was and I was like this is where as a curator you really learn your discipline because I was also reacting what to what was happening in the way that you know you know those big big you know top six photographers in fashion were getting those solo shows and they were just printing the prints big and it just looked like bad art and it didn't actually Mm -hmm. explain these deeply collaborative processes and these highly responsive processes and these processes and kind of herbs that speak to each other. It's like this serpent constantly eating its own tail. It was like, you know, those monographic shows didn't work for me in the main. And I was resisting that. So I wanted to do shows and to create archives. I actually said, it's all of these people that creates the energy Mm. of a a creative moment. And um, yeah, and so, and I never lost that. And then I made some really good friends, really good friends from the people I was meeting who were 10 times smarter than people I was meeting in museums or academia, to be Mm. blunt. And it all smart in the way that I... I like smarts, which is like, oh, I've got this feeling or we should do that or should we risk it? Should we, you know, just like this en- creative energy. And um, so I sort of, you know, and each every few years I'll, I'll do something different. Sometimes it's about saying, come on, people, this is what's at stake if we don't get this right. Or, And there's, you know, I wrote um, a book uh, which – uh, a, a couple of years ago called Fashion Image Revolution, which was around the darkroom BDI labs, but Brian Dowling, the master printer, mm. um, looking at his trajectory through all of those partnerships and principally Nick Knight starting in the mid-1980s, but really just the way in which his analog colour printing is genius, but it also radically set up the kind of aesthetics the proto aesthetics for digital and I mean they're just for me like they're the most romantic epic amazing stories and then it's just this like little east end guy Mm -hmm. you know who just is a brilliant counter and can and just work magic in a in a wet dark room there is so much in what you just said. I kind of want to... Sorry. Pick it a f- no, it's great. I want to pick it a few different <laughs> things. I guess as a curator, there's no like neat way for me to start, so I'll just jump in with one of them. But as a curator, you know, you touched upon the role of the personal in fashion, which is really interesting, specifically, you know, thinking about the new Black Vanguard, but also mm. in, um, you know, the history of fashion photography and then thinking about how the personal operates in, you know, art photography. I feel like even now so many artists are pushed to kind of push down the personal and continue to just like, I don't know, I guess have some mystery around the context of the work. And I don't know, just like I think I speak to a lot of young artists or sort of mid-level artists who still feel like their gallerists are trying to tell them, you know, don't make this about you, don't reveal anything, keep it just about the work. But actually for me, I feel like the way in which 
the personal and the work intertwine is that sweet spot. Like that's what I really care about. Like how a life yeah. conjured this piece of work or this body of work. Like that's what gets me yes. going. Yeah. And I and yeah, I guess I'm curious. It's interesting to hear you, I guess, celebrate that because I think so many people don't. Like there's a there's a sort of history of in the art world of that that that's not important you know I don't know if that's I mean, a question <laughs> it's well yes although I do have a question for you about that like what you think that's about but to answer off the bat just briefly in terms of curating I do think even though it's this wild generalization you can divide curators between those who really want the artists and the creators to be alive and in direct mm. dialogue with their curatorial processes and those who just want the artists dead and out mm -hmm. of the way. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, there's like history or contemporary, but I, but I do think that's something that really drives me is I'm living through this as well. Like it's personal to me what I'm doing and it's therefore it's really important that I don't, come up with some random you know detached version or kind of, it's it's not like I'm wildlife observing mm -hmm. it's not it's like I'm communing I'm channeling I'm thinking about how do you give cultural value to this thing that is happening right in front of our eyes but I have a question for you about that why do you think what is your suspicion about I mean you 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 described this character who was a gallerist so I imagine you're thinking that there's something about capitalism or the commerce of art which represses or what what's what's your mm -hmm. kind of like what's at stake for you when you ask me that question yeah there's definitely a capitalist agenda put but putting it simply I think it's probably just easier to sell art without the politics of a person but I think if we come at this more critically and we think about the reckoning that the art world is currently undergoing and think about historically who's been let in and who's been kept out. It's a certain type of person who's always been granted the status of an artist, primarily a white cis male. The art world for such a long time has only been interested in their inquiry and their questions, which is obviously beyond reductive. I think also, and I don't mean this to sound flippant, but maybe a lot of these men didn't have that interesting lives because they were often, you know, in these positions out of privilege rather than struggle. When I look around now and think about the most interesting artists who are making the most powerful work, it's because they're really grappling something with something. You know, they're really getting into the mess. They're really getting into the difficult issues. And I think that is why, for me, the personal has such an important place in the dialogue and accessibility of art. You know, the art world has this history of being exclusionary, and that's not just to artists, it's also to audience. It's long been framed within more of an academic context. You kind of, you kind of needed knowledge to access the work. But I think for so many audiences and potential audiences, it's that personal experience which unlocks a piece of art for them. That's what help, helps welcome people in now. Um, I think, in my opinion, you know, that's kind of what art should be about now, starting a conversation with a broad audience about the questions we have about this world that we occupy. It's really nice to hear just a couple of days into the new year. It's like, yeah, keep at it. So I remember what's really important. You, you prompted a lot of thought for me there. I mean, a couple of things that came to mind was, firstly, um, uh, I had, I mean, I don't talk about it much just because on a personal level it was really horrible, but I did for a time work at the Science Museum in, in London. Um, and the reason it attracted me so much, I mean, again, it was slightly fantasy when I actually got there and, realized that it was a bunch of guys with their arms crossed. That was something quite different. But when I actually thought about it, what I loved was um, there was a sort of a, you know, there was endless visitor exit surveys. And one of the things that comes up for a science museum, which is, you know, I mean, historically, but also even now, I think is a really apposite place for creative industry and image making technologies to be part of the language of a science museum as it is as an art museum. 
But um, one of the surveys was that something like 92% of visitors to the London Science Museum said they were not experts in science. And, you know, even me, like, you know, 35 years down the line on this, I still think what I'm going to wear and Google an exhibition in an art museum before I go because I don't want to be placed in the embarrassing position where I just don't get it. Whereas Mm. 92% of people who go to a science museum are like, what's that? I don't know what that is. (laughs) (laughs) Great. (laughs) And that's really worth bearing in mind. And I think that becomes um, one of the, one of the things I also appreciate about working in a science museum in the 21st century is of course it was a place at the time its director was a climate scientist and this idea that actually, and that connects to another part of my life, but it's, um, which in terms of working in an environment, artist's environmental studio here in LA for a couple of years, this in the mid 2010s, is no one is an expert on what is next. And an mm-hmm. artist's proposal for what it needs to be or how to imagine and act urgently is as important as a scientist at this particular juncture. Like we should really just accept that none of us are experts on the future and we Mm -hmm. need to all create and mobilize. And I think that that makes that for me is, is, is one part of my response to what you're saying is, is we can't repress the fact that none of us are experts and there isn't the goddad Mm -hmm. who's going to make it okay. There's no, my sister uses this phrase. It's horrible. There's no dancing for daddy anymore. (laughs) And, um, On the other side of it, you know, what you you reminded me was actually about age because you're you're a bit younger than me, and you're talking about that defining moment around forty mid career, mid career, mm. and um, oh. the choices that you make. Then that moment where you know you experience it in your thirties, like, huh, maybe we're not all of this group or generationally all together and tight and coherent. By the time you hit 40, you're like, oh, so-and-so's, I never knew they were after that. I, You know, like suddenly, were we all aiming for the same thing? Clearly not. And you're sort of searching mm. for, like, there's a sub-tribes begin to emerge at that point. And so, like, one of the big sub-tribes within art in the mid-career phase is artists who are, are going to be, like, the maintenance guys you know the ones who maintain a certain position Mm -hmm. and they put an awfully lot of time a lot of time in it and some extremely good artists who will probably be recognized for at least another 50 years within the story of contemporary art you know you meet them and you think oh you're the most boring person I've ever met because all you're doing Mm -hmm. is just like making sure shoring up that kind of high point that you hit and it's keeping that and it's yeah. so much about servicing an industry and a business. And then the artists that I love are the ones who are like, oh, they, they went over there because they were curious about that. And then they went over there and did something completely mm. different. And it's like, whoa, I need to talk to you. What have you been doing? What have you been thinking? It's like clearly something is happening and their art is their way of questioning and figuring things out. And that's what I relate to. And uh, um, I mean, you know, with it has hor- some horrible, precarious consequences in life. But I really just think that that for me is is why people make stuff. Like that's what human endeavor is, which I really learned from you know spending twelve years working in the VNA, having to go through galleries of things just made by humans, where you're going, um humans brilliant what they can do it's Mm. but just dealing with that idea that human endeavor is what distinguishes us from other mammals and is is the most important thing and it's the most life-affirming thing it's 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 and it can take so many different forms and it can change throughout your life and and also it allows us to be diverse. It says you don't need to have gone to mm. that school or come from that vantage point or whatever in order 
for you to tick all the boxes to say you make art with a capital A. It's like it, it's, it means so many different things because that's the diversity of human endeavour. How did you cultivate the confidence to do that within your own practice? I think I had the shitty job at the Science Museum and then I left and I was like, I need to work this out. And it was a particular it was a particular moment for me. It was one of those moments of reckoning, which was, you know, we're at that sort of 40-ish, which is how do I want to look back at this moment? Do I want to look back and say, oh, I handled this really tricky political institutional position with grace and aplomb? No. I want to say I met this person and I went there and we did this and I participated in that I mean, like, in a way, it's not even a choice. It was actually just a sort mm-hmm. of reclaiming of a, like, why am I doing any of this? I mean, I didn't choose to make a ton of money. I didn't choose, you know, there were like loads of things I didn't do in that time mm-hmm. leading up to being 40. And then it was like, and now you've got to deal with the reality of where we are culturally, you know, you know, whatever, geographically, whatever. It's like, how, what am I going to do? What, how do I want to remember this moment? So, yeah, that was the reckoning for me. It's so powerful, actually, to think about how do I want to remember this moment? I think that's such a great guiding principle because we're just so used to taking shit, in all honesty. I think there's this message (laughs) still. I see it shifting, and I see it really shifting with younger generations of like they're not prepared to you know do the first 10 years and take all the shit and deal with it to get to where they want to go they're like no I'd rather build my own world and I think that's so exciting and where where we can go I guess touching on you know your life within institutions because you've worked with some incredible institutions as well as done so many exciting projects as a freelance curator writer interlocutor um I'm curious like which you prefer or if you've got to a stage Um, where you do prefer one or the other I don't I think um I think because I mean I've said it a number of times but there was this there there was this ex-colleague a senior slightly terrifying um head of department in at the V&A who she said she had two comments about me, neither of which I I was totally sure were compliments. And the first one was, was like, Charlotte, you're always dressed for a party. That <laughs> <laughs> was great. <laughs> the second one, she goes, well, I think you're going to do your career in reverse. <laughs> because, That's I mean, so remember, I was like, I was a full curator, like curator of photographs by the time I was 26. I mean, it was, I mean, partly because it was photography and no one cared back in the day. Um, but, you know, also it was like, I, I mean, like, where do you go from there, really? Yeah. I mean, okay, I, there's lots of things you could go from there. And, you know, although I think the odds against me as a woman being seen as a, like, a, as a kind of prodigy or a child genius are very, very limited because, uh, yeah, youth is very short in comparison to men um, mm-hmm. or the perception of men. So, you know, I, I, I also that's always a calculation in my mind is like how I read rooms like somebody who knows that it's not all set up for me, <laughs> like lots of people. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. but anyway, I think it was the doing in reverse is a, a really good way of me thinking about the fact that, you know, what's what's there to lose really in all of this? Like it, particularly if you've, if you've worked through your own relationship with the patriarchal structure, it's, mm-hmm. it's like where you're aiming for and, you know, where you acquiesce and where you're just like, nah, nothing to do with me. It, you know, those are really kind of their political choices that each of us individually make and we make it at certain points in our life. But I'm I respond very well to what you're you're saying about I think younger people are different. Like they don't take that 10 years of like anonymous mm. supporting the head of department kind of stuff. And I think that it's a brilliant challenge for all of us. 
Uh, and you see that within the fashion world amazingly, which has always been like highly hierarchical and exploitative. And it's like, look, mm-hmm. how could, how would you ever be structurally diverse if you don't have payment structures for somebody? To, you're expecting your hair, makeup, stylist and assistants to essentially mm-hmm. work for free. And the old idea that if you do enough work, editorial work for free, then you'll get the ad job. Like that hasn't worked since 9-11. Categorically, it's been 20 years since that was the... That was the professional plan that you would give us give a young person. So it's like this that's an amazing opportunity for all of us, regardless of how much experience, how young or how old. It's like, how do you create a structure which is genuinely structurally diverse? Well, you start dismantling all of these preconceptions of what it needs to be. And that's not snowflakery. That's not kind of, you know, entitlement of youth. That is actually really saying this is unsustainable. And that's the Mm -hmm. big challenge for generations that are coming up behind us is just to be the ones who call it out. And the responsibility of us is to really listen to that and, and be really inventive about how we restructure just not wasting our time saying, oh, you know, I kept everything going. It's like, why keep it going if there's a better way of doing it? You're really touching on something which I, which keeps me up at night. Like this is this, (laughs) you know, editorials, editorials are a great example, but it happens in different parts of the industry as well. And Mm. I feel very torn. And this sounds like a flippant question, but I don't mean it to be that flippant, but I find myself struggling to believe that we can fix the current system in my mind dramatic as it sounds it needs to be burnt down and start again I just don't know how it feels insurmountable to undo all of these like nightmarish situations that we've got ourselves into or that have you know proliferated for generations and we've just not stood up or said anything I just don't know I just I literally sometimes don't know if like, it sounds awful and crass, but if generations of creatives need to pass away for us to be able to get a clean slate. And that's not to say that one generation is better than the other. It's more just that there's safety in clinging onto what we know. And it happens in advertising as well. Yeah. I mean, I think what's really, I, I mean, to be honest, I have been saying that horrible thing, which now as I get older, it's like, you were throwing a few stones at glass houses, weren't you? When the sort of die or retire, kind of like, yeah, yeah. I'd be saying that, I should say that started for me around 2005. So it's like, I've been waiting for ages and and, and quite a lot of it seems to be perfectly fine, you know? Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of ups and downs of who gets thrown under the bus in the time that we live mm-hmm. through it's like it's still surprising yeah. how many of the usual suspects seem to be sort of like totally oblivious to any of this and carry on as before however the big difference is 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 in t- in the mid-2000s it was definitely the case that it was like I need to go off and wander the world because there are not enough people in senior positions with a vested interest in changing the blueprint I don't know if that's true now. And I think there's loads of reasons, even a pandemic on top of everything else, which is like, I give up, you know, you decide. I think things will change much, much more quickly um, over the next Mm -hmm. couple of years. And I think that it also means that you have to put up with what I think I call the death rattle of the patriarchy is there's actually things Mm -hmm. that you really thought it's like, come on, I really thought that would go a long time Mm -hmm. ago and it's still there and it's still noisy, but I think it's just the noise. And one of the things that I have really learned from the younger people who are leading from the front is they know when not to get upset about something. Uh, just like mm-hmm. they see it as as a kind of symptomatic of this death rattle of the patriarchy yeah. or the death rattle of white supremacy. And it's like, it's really loud, it's really obnoxious and it can hurt you if you let it or you just like, you let it glide off you as irrelevant, mm-hmm. as essentially a, a death rattle. I love that. That's just given me so much solace in just a few words. <laughs> Like so much. 
Um, oh, and so, well, I'll give you another handy hint then is, is, is keep a little book, which is like write down anything that you overhear is said to you that you want to look back at and laugh because you cannot believe that that is still being said. <laughs> oh, it's so depressing. I've worked in so many places where there were screenplays could have been born out of the awful conversations that were had. It's just... <laughs> And I, I, every time I like go online, I'm like, oh, that business, someone's going to have, you know, pulled that business down or, you know, justice would have been served. It still doesn't. You're just like, but it's the death rattle. Now I know. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I have no affinity with religion whatsoever, but I do think of you as, as one of my art prophets, Charlotte. And I've said this to you before. And you even touched upon it earlier in our conversation, but you have had so many instances of capturing, and I hate this word, but capturing the zeitgeist of what artists are thinking about in a particular moment. You've done it time and time again, and you have such a unique ability to kind of interrogate your initial inquiry, that initial hook, but really push it to the point where it becomes prophecy. Like when the book is published or the show comes out, it's far reaching. Like it goes beyond maybe sometimes what people, what like the mainstream are comfortable with in that moment. So, you know, we talked about this recently when I was um, thinking about, well, I think you've done it. Well, I think you've done it in a few different ways, but with public private secret, for sure, there's so much prophecy in that, which really has only begun to ring really true in the last sort of few years. And the same with photography is magic. I feel like every time I go on Instagram, that's just evolving and evolving and evolving and now becoming more present in the mainstream consciousness. I guess I want to know, how do you always know what's going to happen? Like, how do you know? I don't, you see, that's your projection onto me, and I'm really grateful for it, and thank you. And it does help me stop feeling like a bit of a, a loser, which I do feel quite a bit of the time in terms of, you know, it's um, it's it's almost it's this love of the almost ungraspable, and it's not very concrete for me. So it's like I don't really know those things. I mean, I have hopes for what I do. That I mean, I I think of it more, I suppose, as a, a counter argument. I mean, not a particularly polemic one, but the idea that you know, I've said I have said this before, which is like I like the idea of if you know one of my books being in a secondhand store and somebody finding it twenty years later and going, I really didn't know that that was happening at that time mm-hmm. because that's not the mainstream idea of what happened. Like that's a really amazing contribution to make, and um, I, f- I feel a little tearful. I mean, I feel emotional. I feel really grateful for you for saying that about about that. I would say the predictive nature is in every every creative act. I like I'd say you would say that fashion image at its best is highly predictive, mm-hmm. art always, and um, so I think it's it's that that practice the process of practice if you think Mm -hmm. long and hard about it and you start connecting the dots and how it feels and being present in your time then there's a there's a good chance that it's something that will endure from that even though it feels very kind of um light and I was what I was getting emotional about was also I was thinking um yeah I was I was really like a lot of people massively in love with Larry Sultan and um, he passed over a decade ago and I was really lucky to be working with him and Mike Mandel on a book about their work together from being students onwards when Larry got sick and so spending a lot of time with him like the best of it and also with with heading towards his passing and his amazing wife Kelly told me about something that he said very close to his end and about um you know one of the things that he was really happy about in his life was always made him very very excited was the idea that he got to touch culture and he said you know really lightly like with a feather but I touched Mm -hmm. culture and um that was so him, you know, he was a fabulous person, like, you know, 
you'd make a plan with him. You'd make a big plan with him and you'd have a laugh. But that idea of just being able to touch culture, you know, not not to disrupt it, not to own it, not to fuck with it, but just just to touch it lightly, I think is... Um, yeah, I sh- I I I'm gonna have to think of another f- phrase for my deathbed, <laughs> which is as good as that. <laughs> but that seemed, <laughs> of course, it was really good. It was Larry Selton, but he I think he was right. <laughs> I think that's that's an that's an amazing life, and that is the amazing gift of life to have touched it. Did did the projects like Photography's Magic and Public Private Secret? Did they did they feel like you were reaching? at the time I know it was intrinsic to you because they're your beliefs but in terms of how they were received or, or the conversations you had around those projects do you I think mean, uh, yeah they 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 were very conversational and there was there was, mm-hmm. there was some people who were really pivotal in terms of just helping me sort of stay stay really to take the idea seriously, I mean, which particularly with photography as magic was somewhat problematic in, in the sense that it was like it was not only I wanted to do a book about you know this artist-led moment, and it was mm-hmm. definitely in reaction to the fact that I wasn't seeing institutions being able to cope with that, and they were missing, they were missing it, they were literally mm-hmm. missing it, and at the same time, it was it was also about wanting to do a trade book, you know, a book that, you know, an 18 year old might get for Christmas because it was in Barnes and Noble and I had a flatty mm-hmm. cover and, you know, I was working, collaborating with Harsh Patel, the designer who I work with quite a lot. And, you know, it was his first trade book and that's what brought him in. It wasn't that he didn't want to do another Sternberg press book or whatever. It wasn't mm-hmm. preaching to the converted. It was like, how do you do a trade book, which is about what is really exciting right, right now before it becomes something. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, books is somewhat, and, and exhibitions, obviously as a curator, you're doing that for someone. And so you might have a particularly idealized version of who that's for or a very specific or a very general. And with photography is magic, I was, you know, I was dealing with, I'd been in the UK doing this shitty job at the Science Museum, but it was also at the time of the wholesale privatization of higher education. And I was thinking, you know, I only have an undergraduate degree. And, you know, it's not that I didn't have the intelligence to do more than that. It was that actually I didn't want the debt and I didn't want, Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to know what was out there for me. And and if I had, I don't know if I would have gone to university at all if it had been 2012, honestly, because mm-hmm. of the debt. Yeah. I might have gone and set up a t shirt stall in Camden. You know, I, it could have just pushed mm-hmm. me in a completely different direction. And I wanted to do a book for that version of myself at 17 to say, listen, you've got it. The future belongs to you. And these are the mm. people who, he should just be introduced to to realize that there is like, and it had to be 80 artists. It couldn't be seven. I wasn't trying to say like, these are the <laughs> best, best, best. I wasn't being connoisseurial about it. I was saying, look at the energy, mm. look at all these different directions and this all coexists. Mm. And so, so there you can see, it's like, I'm committed to that 17 year old. Like that's what I'm doing there. And that's why it's important to try and express it in such a way that it is, you know, is right for that person or public private secret. That was for everyone. That was like, but it was also, it was like, how do you create a show where it's like, you have to look at yourself in order to look at that show. It's like a hard mm. fucking read of a show. And I made a lot of changes to that show. I mean, and still, by the time it opened, people were like, oh, it's a bit dark, isn't it? But, you know, like within three or four months, Trump was president. And then people were like, actually, this looks like reality. It's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it was like it was just at that moment. And But I was hanging out with technologists and hackers and mm. artists who really think about these kind of things. And it's like, no, it's really as bad as you could possibly imagine. It's really that bad. And we're all implicated in it. And it's mm. like, that's that's what we've got to deal with. So that show was really about... It was also about being in physical space. You know, it was about having that mm. as a physical experience. It was a very bodily 
very bodily show. But the way, just also the way that it was, you know, text and images went together and how the installation was done just meant it's like it's all over to you. Like you join the dots on this because actually most of this you know, but then join the dots. And then having these sort of like killer moments, which were just like these sort of like, we're not the first humans to have been here. Like, you know, there were like three Sojourner Truth carte de visites. On every carte de visite, which she sold to raise money for her activism, it says, I sell the shadow to support the substance. That's like mm-hmm. the 1850s, Sojourner Truth is like knowingly selling her image to support the substance. I mean, it's like it blows your mind to think that actually nothing is new human beings have been Mm. dealing with all of this shit forever and you know we just need to know we need to be empowered intelligence is all we have left are you always thinking about audience when you're making work or or developing a project yes i mean it might be that the audience is um the artists themselves or you know a a very specific person or a small circle or Mm. Or it is, but it is, you know, because I did my career in reverse, it's also about thinking about every man, woman, child and dog must be able to get this as well. Like Mm -hmm. I'm really, that public servant side of me is also there. Like I'm really not dancing for daddy. I'm really not doing this Mm -hmm. for the, the kind of the cool boys. I'm not, you know, there's anyone I'm really trying to impress in that way, you know, I mean, any real person that I'm trying to impress other than the people I'm working with at that particular moment to really make it shine and bring it together in a a public way. I think that's what I've so long admired in your work is this combination of like really discovering or connecting the dots between something radical happening or something energetic, but mixed with this powerful sense of accessibility and I don't find that, you know, in all of the art world or even all of the photo world. And so that, you know, that's really meaningful to me. And I think that's what's so exciting about what you're doing. There's nothing new in what I'm doing. Like, I saw that in the way that Val Williams curated mm-hmm. or Sandy Phillips, who was at SF MoMA. Like, significantly two women curators who were... but. They're just their ideas were just wildly good and unexpected. You know, in a time when, you know, I mean, it's one of the things, you know, and I, I don't feel angry about it. I feel a bit sad about it. You know, photography often sort of falls back on what it thinks is solid because it's still dealing with its mm. own insecurity complex about where it fits culturally. Yeah. But, you know, the amount of times that you see exhibitions within institutions or within biennials or festivals where you go, you literally could have done most of that apart from the two token black artists 15 years ago. And I just Mm. don't get why you would want to do that. I mean, how many times do we do it? I Mm. I just don't get it. I just don't get it. And that's not, and that, yeah, why you would want so little (laughs) for photography, really. But it's interesting the way that the art world has kind of taken on this kind of blockbuster strategy, a bit like the movie business, and it will just keep perpetuating the same ideas because that's where the cash flow is. And it's, you know... Well, I mean, it's absolutely about, you know, the digital digital culture, isn't it? It's like that sort of polarisation, as you say with film, blockbuster or, you know, red camera kind of ground swell cults film, mm. you know, I mean, but nothing in between. <laughs> yeah. And, and I would say that like the culture industry kind of, kind of did that with like mega mm. galleries or mega institutions or artist run spaces. And it's a bit more problematic when you add in, um, I think it's more damaging when you add in actually that, um, responsibility of culture to serve you know the public service Mm. of cultural organizations you know there's a big void that's missed if you're not the Tate or you know a living room gallery or a garage gallery in Los Angeles there's a lot of room Mm. in between there and there's very little funding for that and Mm. yeah so 
it's just much more challenging. I think there's a lot more at stake even than even within film, which is essentially an industry with industry standards and with the economics of an industry, whereas culture, I think, is something something else. It's very and also, true. also the funny thing is, is like, you know, I, I've sat in enough meetings in institutions with with like development officers and so forth going, yeah, but we need a really famous photographer. And you go, look, apart from Annie Leibovitz, who around is a famous photographer? Like, what do you mean by a famous photographer? Famous to who? No one's, yeah. no one's heard of any photographers apart from Annie Leibovitz. That's very true. The most famous photographers now are like 21-year-olds as well, but that makes the art world very uncomfortable because they haven't earned Yeah, the, the fact that they have like, you know, 240,000 followers on Instagram and, yeah, it just yeah. doesn't translate to... Yeah, it doesn't translate. You touched on right at the beginning of our conversation how you juggle your curatorial work and how you do consultancy. I was interesting, yeah. interested to hear a little bit more about the consultancy work and how, yeah, how you balance the two. I mean, I should think it's like, it's like most people, it can be, it's either, it's either, it's feast or famine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it really is. And um, I mean, I suppose I, I have the same criteria ultimately. It's like, like I'm not a sort of particularly well-known established consultant in anything really it tends to be it tends to be that somebody knows me and knows that I'd come in and I think another friend said of me when I was being interviewed for a job they told the boss man when they were interviewing me look the thing is with Charlotte she's the, she's somebody who you'd never be able to predict exactly what she she comes up with but it will be absolutely unique and it'll be the best advice that you could be given. And I think there's something of that in me is, is I'm a real listener and that's what consultancy work mm. is, is really looking mm. at the situation. I mean, I obviously have, you know, an ethical code as well. And I think about how images are being read and a lot of the, a lot of the kind of opportunities for consultancy is in a time where things read differently than they've ever read and so whether that's an individual artist or a particular organization that wants to sort of think about that or is worried of just making mistakes and being cancelled or you know should I be doing this Mm. should I be doing this at all and wants that sort of somebody who's going to be really listen to them but really think through with them what the strategy needs to be and I think a lot of consultancy has gone that way particularly in the commercial sort of creative industry image making world it's all about um, strategy actually and Mm. you know I can't wait for the day that you know places start actually training people visual strategy rather than photography exactly as a as a certain skill set it's actually it's about visual communication and visual strategy and it's not even the old school version sort of that that emerged in the 1960s or late 50s it's is actually, and it's not about magazines, and it's it's, it's about everything that we do. But the idea mm. that to, you know, you can't. There's there's so little invested into potentially what these new structures will be, whether they're commercial structures or communication structures. Whether it's whether you call it marketing or communications, who I mean, mm-hmm. even that is like up for debate. And so there's a lot of shortfalls yeah. in the commercial world, particularly around communication and marketing, that actually is going to take new thinking and new models to being made. And I, that really excites me because that's going to affect us culturally. What 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 wins out at this particular moment? You know, and it's like, you know, there's only so many decades you're willing to talk about the end of editorial. It's like, come on, folks. Yeah. We've got to find something else Seriously. to talk about. <laughs> yeah. So true. So, I'm probably not telling you. I'm, I've signed so many NDAs. I can't really tell you specifically what I do. <laughs> but <laughs> I really listen and I'm really interested in the idea that actually new structures, you know, that it's one of the places where it's going to happen. It's like the commercial world is one of the first places that's going to have to respond to the realities. Like, And there are now so few people who have a vested interest 
in not looking at new models. There's so few people left now that this is exactly mm -hmm. the moment where new structures will emerge. So, and I want to be part of that, you know? I mean, that will affect everything that I do. And similarly with curating, I mean... I mean, I sort of come and go. It's like so I can go two years without curating a show or three years without curating a show. And I've been through a kind of a big period of writing. And so I think, you know, I go in cycles as well. Like how much time can I spend on my own without just wanting to give up completely? Or how much time mm -hmm. do I need to be private? You know, just balancing all of those things, really. I find it so hard to tune into those tune into that intuition I think there's so much distracting us now and there's so much pressure mm. to be this or that or be seen there or here or whatever I think it's so hard to yeah to sort of cultivate that sense of self and really tune into this is where my head's at now and and surrender to that in the best possible way so it's interesting to hear you talk about you know the cyclical nature of your practice and kind of how it ebbs and flows I think that that's yeah. really yeah that'll be really helpful to people because it's something a lot of people struggle with I mean you can't do all things all the time for most of us there isn't like a sort of very fixed structure beyond you know our sort of personal lives the the whatever levels degrees that's fixed or needs to mm -hmm. be fixed but in terms of like I don't know. I, I hardly know anyone. Well, I mean, particularly with the pandemic, that really shakes everything up in terms of nine to five office jobs. It, you know, mm. it affects, you know, where or how you live. Or, I mean, all of these sorts of questions. And so I think it's, it's probably, I think, I think we've probably had more practice in the last 18 months of just sort of really dealing with what can I do today? What mm -hmm. really needs to happen in the next month and those sort of things. And I, I actually, I, I, I mean, I'm okay with that. I, I mean, even yeah. though that can, it means that you really have, you have to get really strategic and really brutal about it. Like what time of day you think of certain things, mm -hmm. like what times you have to cut off that thing because that's going to, you know, you'll, you'll take more time thinking about that or it'll begin to affect your personal life. It's like, those sort of disciplines of like almost like brutally what's in it for me to do that today is just mm -hmm. the way that most people live actually I think yeah it's very true okay quick fire questions okay ready yeah how do you deal with self-doubt uh I laugh at it <laughs> I mean it's like it's like it's like oh you again <laughs> <laughs> that's a great answer I should I should have prefaced this by saying these aren't quick fire questions. I'm just being mean. How has success changed your work? What's what do you mean by success? What do you mean by success? <laughs> do you know that no, that was the answer? <laughs> Done. Um, okay. <laughs> no, go on. Um, I think very little of it because I don't. I'm like I'm obviously getting jumpy. Just even like success. I mean, like success is being able to you know, go go and look after my nephew for five weeks, like be able to afford to travel and to take the time. Like that for me would be, that that for me is success, is to make those choices, have those freedoms. And I, I hope I use it wisely, yeah. What does your practice of curating and writing and thinking and making enable you to do that other mediums wouldn't? I think it means that I'm, I always feel like I'm part of something. <laughs> Is there anything you've had to unlearn along the way during your career? No, I think I was. I think I was cynical from such an early age. That... <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean like like I mean cynical of all of the things like what what, what as I'm thinking like what would I what would what do you tend to unlearn? Well, you tend to unlearn not to listen too much to authority or to stop being mm. so polite or, you know, all of those things that particularly women, I think, you know, do spend quite a lot of time unlearning. And I think because I was, um, you know, as a twin, identical twin, looked exactly like my sister, so I was, like, always a freak and always... My sister and I learnt 
so much about how other people project onto you Mm. regardless of who you are like that's what I meant when I say I'm cynical is like Mm -hmm. I remember being from going from a little girl when everyone was like oh look at those two freakish like monster kids with long hair and very pale skin you know and we would just like stare at people just like who the fuck are you you're like and and right up to become going through puberty and you know that being twins being sexualized and so forth so I think that's my that that was a really important part of who I am is 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 I think I I I didn't know it until I moved into adult life but actually I understood other people's projections upon me for what they were which is you just can't let them matter to you I think yeah, that's probably my area of at least remembering who I am, if if not unlearning. Do you still think photographs have the power to shift thinking or consciousness? Yes, I do. I, I mean, whether whether it's the image itself or it's the action of of visualizing, which is probably where I say more of my interest has been the sort of act of making images yeah I think it I think it's radically shaped who we are and I honestly think that it's for me it's much more positive than it is negative and I think about I mean like everyone and particularly someone who's got friends with kids who are coming into adulthood now of which I'd say the vast proportion of them are gender non-conforming or non-binary. Mm. And I think that's amazing to have a generation coming into adulthood who know more about who they are than we had any idea. Mm. There will be less wars, there'll be there'll be many challenges, but I think actually human beings will have progressed. And that's about being seen and seeing others like yourself. That's so in those big, big ways, I think, I think the image remains a a powerful and positive actioning in our lives. Now, whether or not photography, its self-elected community decides to go with that or not, is always the tussle. It's been the tussle mm. the whole time I've been involved with photography. Are you coming with us? Are you putting the life jacket on? Mm. Or are you sitting on the Titanic ordering your entree? Totally up to you. I'm putting my life jacket on. <laughs> I like to imagine you in all of these different situations with exactly that mindset running through your head. I can just imagine those moments have been endless. Oh, that's so funny. This isn't a quick fire question, but this is the question that I ask everybody at the end of the show. What matters more to you, the process of making the work or the final project or manifestation of whatever it is? Oh, what do you think it is, Gem? Exactly. I feel like it's kind of an epic fail to ask you that question. Um, although we didn't we didn't actually talk about process that much. No. But, but process is your no, jam, I- right? process is my jam and to um a a, a really beloved person the stylist simon foxton was asked um the interview question when are you at your most happy and he said early morning driving on my way to a car boot sale and (laughs) i i was like i totally get that and I think that's 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 the bit. It's the process is the adventure, is like setting out on an adventure. I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. It's really, really nice to talk to you. Thanks for inviting me. It's much appreciated. Thanks for listening to The Messy Truth. You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes. Theme music is changed by Judd Greenstein from the album Awake and design is by Ruby White. You can follow updates on the podcast on my Instagram at Jem Fletcher or subscribe to my newsletter at jemfletcher.com. Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts.